Where's the where's the base runner today between uh first and second, second, third, third home? I think the third to home pickle is the most uh it's the most exciting one. So let's put it there. Because so either a, a run or what about like a third. is a triple pickle the, the the highest degree of pickle? A trickle? A tri- a, a dickle? No, no. This guy tickles my pickle and uh and Stop pickle, it. pickle. Dickle, trickle. The triple pickle is intense. You got like the base runners going everywhere. Guys, like two, ba- two guys on one base. Let the handy trickle get over. Yeah, a lot of possibilities there. I can go. I'm mixing everything in the song today. I can see that. Uh, let's jump right in. Let's hit our topics. Uh, I had texted producer Patrick over the weekend. I have a very specific case for this. Moment you knew you were in trouble on the field. Your biggest oh moment on a baseball field chris Kidding. ever so confident chris do you have any moments ever in the history of your life where you were like this ain't it i'm in trouble it was actually when i had when i was the most i think confident <laughs> about my career um i guess there were really two uh one was when i was not confident about my career um double a spring training just a hot mess like I'm trying to make a team I'm 28 years old trying to make my first affiliated full season roster nobody knows who I am and the only experience I'd ever had was being cut so I'm trying to make sure I'm impressing everyone instead of just going out playing baseball and letting the cards fall where they may because at the end of the day as athletes we're at our best when we're just playing we're you have to just go out and play. Like you can't stress on what this guy thinks or what anybody else might be looking at or what they might want from you. This is kind of where we tow those lines of confidence and security about just knowing that you know what you're doing as an athlete or, or you're going to put your best foot forward and you're going to make mistakes too. So I would say double a like pretty much the better part of the first three months. So that's one month of spring training and two months of season. And then this is like, this one's kind of funny. Um, I'd never faced Joe Kelly before I'm with Toronto and I, I started out pretty good when I got to the big leagues and I was feeling good, good in triple Um, I, I think I was something like seven for my first 11 in the big leagues and they were facing Joe Kelly. And <laughs> I remember he threw me a fastball at 99 or 98 and it went like this <laughs> across home plate. And then he threw me a slider and it went, <laughs> and I went, well, I have no chance at hitting any of these. And I was standing in the box. And I remember the good thing was I was able to laugh at myself and be like, well, I mean, he's doing this to everybody else too. And then I actually, I actually hit him okay. I, I mean, I, he, he would get behind in counts a lot. So it afforded me the luxury to kind of hunt more fastballs and stuff like that. But, you know, if he just threw strike one, uh, like I would be standing there and I was like laughing. I was like, there's no chance I'm getting a hit right now. Kind of funny. 
Not a fun feeling. I, you actually just triggered another memory in my mind. Uh, 2003 NECBL All-Star Game. This kid, I believe his name was Ryan Mullins. He played for the Rhode Island, I forget, it was the Royals. It was uh, a blue, they had an awesome hat. Um, but lefty, like six, River seven. Point. Huh? River Point. River Point Royals, thank you. And uh, it's like, I think he was six, 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 seven. First pitch he threw, I think it was like 92, but outside corner with like a lot of run. And I was like, wow, I've never seen that much run before. That looks hard. And then the second pitch he threw was a curveball, except I thought it was the same pitch. I thought it was a fastball away. I literally did not see it. And it almost hit my back foot. And I just remember turning the umpire being like, if he throws that, I can't hit it. There's, there's no chance in the world that I'm going to make contact with that. So that was scary. The, uh, the, one, the initial one for the topic was New Jersey Jackals. This would have been 2016. Uh, I had this hellacious at bat against this Dominican kid that was throwing hard. No clue. 2000 what? 2006. You said 16. 2006. Whatever. Wow. They had six in it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's close. It's only off by one. Uh, this kid like throwing fireballs. I don't know what the velocity was. 95, 96. Could have been 92. Could have been 88. I don't know. It felt really fast. And I, I, I think I fouled off like five or six pitches. Finally got on top of one hit a double in the gap, and I just remember getting to second base being like, I'm not good enough to be here. If I have to work that hard to get a hit, I'm in trouble because that's not repeatable. I'm, so I want to know, I'll I wanna know if you had moments like that. Did you have moments like that where it's like that was really hard and does it ever get more comfortable? Because that was the, that was the only time where it's like this is exceeding my threshold of ability. There's, I would say there's a couple of pitchers that no matter what you do, right, there's probably like – I don't know, a dozen pitchers in the world. And it's probably more than that. I'm saying a dozen that I could think of off the top of my head where no matter what you do, you're just, you're not going to hit them. <clears throat> They're your kryptonite, right? Like you don't see them well, whatever. And, and those guys are all different for everybody. Uh, David Price was one to me and Chris Sale was another one where I would go to those guys deep. Huh? Didn't you take both those guys deep? Um, They're both in the books. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, so if that's how we're defining success, then yeah, and I have a homer against each one of them. And I'm not going to lie to you, both times that I hit the homers off them, I was running around the bases like, oh, my God, I can't believe I just did that. Like, literally, I was – I can't believe that just happened. I'm going to act like I, I knew I was going to do it. Uh, I'm also two for 13 career off both of them. One of them struck me out eight times. The other one struck me out nine times. So – if I had to play my whole career against either one of them, I don't think I would have had a very long career. Still a blind squirrel at bats going yeah. on. So, I mean, look, and I think that's part of, that's part of baseball, right? You're going to have guys that you just don't feel comfortable with. And those are, so where I would say your feeling of like, if I have to work this hard, I don't belong here. I, I would say it's the opposite. Like that's, that's grinder stuff to me. That's what defines being great. Like that's what allows guys to be great is, being in circumstances where they're not supposed to feel comfortable or they're not going to feel comfortable and they figure out a way to compete and to be productive and to even give themselves a chance to get a hit. Yeah. I, I wish I had more of your perspective in that moment. That's for sure. Uh, next topic. Shocking, shocking, groundbreaking news. Umpires make mistakes. Study came out. They analyzed. Let me get the number right. They analyzed 4 million pitches over the course of the last 11 seasons. 
That's a lot of pitches. Uh, the quote was, the findings were troubling. So incorrect ball or strikes averaged 14 mistakes per game or 1.6 pitches were wrong per inning. Uh, in the words of Jason Ferber, that ain't it. That but, ain't it. So, I was to use that today. So what I want to say is that the, the human element of the game is part of the game to me. Going with a robot strike zone, well, there's some adjustment there. But I grew up watching like Greg Maddox pitch and earning pitches on the outside corner. And I love that. Uh, Producer Patrick's a catcher. He feels that a robot strike zone takes away probably the biggest part of his game as a defender in building that relationship with the catcher, uh, earning strikes, working at the receiving. Now, having said that, some of the receiving stuff that's happening where guys are like bottom feeding and like pulling balls up six inches, um, this all falls back on everybody's going to always find trying to find an edge. They're starting to call this high curveball strike now because, because the device says it's a strike. I want to know, is it a, where's the play? Is the plane on the front edge of the plate? Is it like 3d strike zone where it's like a video game where you can like curve it into the back of the strike zone? Like, what are we doing? So what, you know, you said mistakes, right? So what is a mistake? Like what is a mistake for an umpire? So we're, we've arbitrarily tried to define the strike zone based on the parameters that are either in the rule book or, you know, that have been generated over time because technology has allowed them to be created. But the reality of the situation is the strike zone is an opinion. It is not a fact of the matter. It is not a thing. Like the strike zone is not defined by that box because for a hundred years that box didn't exist. Now, it was at an umpire's discretion. And if you think about it, really, the baseball field is two lines, home plate. If the ball lands on one side of it, you know it's fair. If it lands on the other side, it's foul. Strike zone's not like that. It's the edge of home plate. And it's the only place in sports where that's true. Like, out-of-bounds lines are not just imaginary lines in sports. Well, so, it, it, NFL's catch rule is kind of on the fence right now, too. So no, that, I know what you're saying. Then, like, yeah, the ball fair. goes in the hoop or it doesn't. Yeah, like, it's either in the goal or in the hoop or inbounds or not. And so the strike zone is a judgment for a lot of guys. And especially, you know, we have a lot of hitters that vary in height and where they stand and things like that. So, like you said, the, the human element of the game is incredibly important, I think, to baseball. It, it allowed catchers to get better because they knew how to frame pitches better. It allowed, uh, it allowed hitters to establish that they knew the strike zone enough to be able to say something to an umpire. Uh, it allowed guys like Greg Maddox to – if you prove that you can throw a ball to a certain spot over and over again – then, yeah, I'm going to give you one that's a little bit further off, especially if the flow of the game – like the flow of the game in baseball, and it, it, it this goes hand-in-hand hand with the analytical stuff. Like the flow of the game dictates what the game is going to do. So if the pitcher's cruising and he's hitting his spots, then like, yeah, he earned another call. Now, as a hitter, did I like it when I went back and looked at a ball that was that far off and the guy called it a strike? No. Uh, to your point, the breaking ball up in the zone, the, the pitch that you completely miss with. I'll never forget, but Tonsis threw me a 3-2, like up and in breaking ball, like completely missed his spot. Like this guy's hard enough to hit it as it is. And the guy called it because he said, oh, I bet you it clipped the box. And I'm like, he was aiming over there, over there. And he threw it over there. 
So what, I mean, that's hard to hit. So look, I, I, the, my opinion about the whole thing, and it, it kind of goes to, to what the article I think is trying to get at. I think the strike zone is fine the way it is. Right. And yeah, guys are going to make bad calls. Umpires are human. They don't stink. They're human. Like it's really hard to umpire a major league baseball game. So what they should do realistically allow a challenge or two per game for every hitter. Like you don't like a call, especially with two strikes. And that's the only place where you need to lock it in. Just let a hitter challenge it. And all the hitter would have to do is turn around and be like challenge and then buzzer in the ear. Yes or no. Let's move on. You know what I mean? They do that in tennis where they get challenges and it, it, it goes pretty quick. The, the thing that's frustrating as a fan is we're watching the game. We see the box. We see where the ball crosses. The only, the person that needs that information the most doesn't have it. So I get really impressed when umpires make really good calls on really close calls that you couldn't see with the naked eye. Like that's even on the bases when they make those calls and the guy misses a tag or whatever, when they make that call, I'm like, well, that was pretty good. And look, you know, I've played at every level. Like I, I think it comes down to having feel umpires. Like if umpires can have feel for the game, feel for who's in the box, like, but it's again, it's all about awareness. It's about knowing who's up to bat, who's pitching, what the score is, how the game's moving. And those things all matter. And I think at the big league level, they probably do the best job of it of anywhere else. So why, like, why are we complaining about a pitch here, pitch there? I'm calling it a mistake. Why? Cause the edges of home plate are this far away. And like, who's to say that that ball clips there. And by the way, the technology has like a margin of error. So if it says it clipped it, it might've missed it or it might've been further inside it. So I don't know. Consistency is the key. Like try to be as consistent as you can. What do you say to an umpire as a hitter? And this is for young hitters. You turn around and you go, Hey, is that as far as you're going? If you didn't like a pitch early in the game, now you've established a border with him. If he says to you, yeah, that's the edge. That's no more than that. Now, if he calls one further than that, you could say, hey, man, like, you know, you told me that was as far as you're going. I'm, try- I'm just trying to gauge what I have to work off of here. Yeah. It's tough when you're younger if, you know, there's no relationship with the umpire and you're just you, – you can come off as being a punk if you're like, come on, where is that? Make it about gathering information and learning and, and a dialogue as opposed to, like, you're a jerk, you make bad calls. Because that doesn't that, – that won't get you very You far. make bad calls. So what happens? So how about you, you get an umpire, you say, is that it? Is that as far as you're going? And he says, yes. And then he, he gives you, he goes further out. What do you do there? Well, I think that's when you can let him know kindly. Again, remember heat of the moment type stuff. I always talk about controlling emotions in the game. And I don't think we can play any sport without controlling our emotions and good, bad, and different, whether it's, we need to go fast, we need to go slow. Um, you have to be able to control all the emotions that you're feeling because at the end of the day, the reality of it is you get a bad call made against you. You're the only one that really feels the pain of it. Oh, nobody else care that you, they got a bad call made against you. Ain't nobody feeling bad for you. Not even your teammates. Like, well, he made one against me too. What do you want me to do? So, you know, understanding how to be constructive is really what it comes down to. And look, is it ever going to be perfect or people, even listening to what I'm saying, like, no. And I'm not even listening to what I'm saying because there have been times where I've lost my mind because, like, the heat of battle, your heart rate's up, you're in a moment where you really want to do well. And it's like, how do you manage that? Everything is about managing the emotion and being a reasonable human and thinking about, if I were on the other side of this conversation, what would I want to hear? And then if the guy's mean to you, if you're polite to him, then what are you going to do? 
I would, I would say that if you ask the umpire if that's his edge and he goes further and you don't swing and he calls it a strike, you've done everything you can to gather information to, form your, to, to help your plan as a hitter. So if, if you, as a hitter, in terms of your pitch recognition, determine that that pitch was outside of what should have been a strike, I think you're doing a good job as a hitter. Was it a bad call? That's the one you, you just chalk it up like, all right, that guy made a bad call. I just got to move on. Can't get too emotionally attached to it. I did what I, I won the battle with myself. And I made the right decision based on the information I had. And just move on. You can't, you can't let it linger. You can't carry it with you. You just got to turn the page. That's why we have to figure out how to redefine what success is in baseball. Absolutely. All right. Role of age in performance. Um, this tweet from Mike Petriolo. Petriolo. How do you say it? Petriolo. He's Italian. Petriello. I just wanted to point out. Petriello. I have my headphones on and they're not plugged into anything. Clayton Kershaw is three months older than Jacob deGrom. What? Jacob Whoa. deGrom. Uh, I just looked it up. Jacob deGrom has uh, 1,155 innings pitched in professional baseball. I did not look up his baseball cube to get his college numbers, but I mean, 100 innings a year in college would be a lot uh, out of Stetson. So 100 a year, we're still talking 1,500 innings pitched. Uh, Kershaw's pitched 2,300 innings over the last 13 years. I, I mean, I'm, I saw that. I'm completely baffled that DeGrom is even remotely. I, I think DeGrom's like five years younger than him in my head. I think and, this is a really bad example because DeGrom got to the big leagues late, and this happens to everyone. Like, he got to the big leagues late. Uh, I don't think he got there until he was like 27, 26. Yeah, but I'm pretty sure his his fastball velocity is like going up. Kershaw's was going down. He went to drive line. They did, drive line does a great job generating velocity, so his velocity's back up, not to what it was, but it's better than what it, the trend. So, to me, it's just it's crazy to see. Like, yeah, he he came up when he was 26, as opposed to Kershaw coming up at uh, 21. 20. He was 20. So, um, and then the, the whole Cat Osterman, obviously one of the best pitchers ever. Um, how about Nelson Cruz just putting up MVP caliber numbers at the age of like, what is 42? Because <laughs> if you can hit, you can hit. And if you like, I, the, the thing that I hate about what baseball is trying to do is define players by age. And, and, and I look like, if you can hit, you can hit. Like somebody was telling me Manny's trying to go play in Australia this winter, right? And he's been trying to keep like, – hitters are going to hit, man. Like it, 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 we're not talking about like peak physical condition to be a hitter or a pitcher for that matter. Like, yes, there's some, some boxes that you need to check. But like the reality of it is at, at both of those things, like because wisdom is going to trump skill set every day of the week with both of those uh, – with both, both of those skills. So – the the better you know yourself like david ortiz was having his best had his best year of his career the year he retired he was 39 40 years old like julio franco is going to hit till he's like 79 like i think he's still trying to hit somewhere so if you can keep yourself in some semblance of physical shape and i think people like we make it out to be like this massive undertaking and I mean, I'm 30, 36. I'm going to be 37 in a minute. And I don't feel any different than I did when I was 21. Like I have a little back, more back stiffness because I'm working out less, but 
you just work through it. You figure out a way to make it work. And I still go out and get hits. I, I know I could. I mean, it's it's a mindset more than it is anything else. People talk about it all the time. Age is just a number. It really is, dude. It's just a number. Like you're going to be what you want to be at whatever age you want to be at period. End of story. I think the, the training, the nutrition, the, the accumulation of, of training over years, like up until recently, there was a steep drop off in performance as hitters got to like that 35, 36. There's a huge trend in, in, not playing, not paying older players because of that decline. Uh, I think with with nutrition and with with better training programs, guys are doing things like what Ortiz did. Objectively, if you lose enough speed, and I think this is where technology, perhaps one of the greatest opportunities with tech in sports, is to measure decline. Everybody uses it for assessment purposes and for. Uh, looking for increase in performance on the way up in your career, not identifying where things are going wrong later in your career. So Albert Pulse is a guy that is near and dear to my heart. He's like the guy in my mind. So looking at his bat speed numbers, looking at it at the, the different metrics that are available, can you measure his force production at the ground level? Can you do motion capture? Can you use, uh, breakdowns of his X factor to figure out what's going wrong or where he's declined. And then can that have an impact? Like, can you objectively change what the body's doing to match previous performance and then apply that to the knowledge that they have where, yeah, they can hit. And then I would, I would have specific questions about the eyes and how fast the, uh, the processing is happening from the visual stimulus, but that's how, different. How much, how much, how much does the drop off come from, a guy gets put in a really comfortable position in his life, i.e., like, what does Albert Pujols have left to prove in the game? Like, what is there anything left for him to prove? And I'm not saying, like, Albert, like, I revere Albert. I think he's one of the greatest hitters of all time. But this this is more the point of the story. Like, you give a guy a 10-year deal when he's 30, and he gets to 35, 36, and unless he's just got that, like, he's just built different, like, he's got a different edge to him, there, there's what like where's your motivation <laughs> like you know what i mean when you've done everything there is to do to do like and and things start to become a little bit of a struggle and I, everybody's gonna be wired a little bit differently i i feel like i'm the kind of person where if you gave me guaranteed money it would allow me to relax more and i would still want to be the best player i could be and that's just the only way i know how to operate it's kind of i would say the same thing's true of tom brady Derek jeter you know whoever like but like realistically speaking, like I'm watching Robinson Cano have one of his best years of his career right now. Mm -hmm. Like that's a guy on a 10 year deal. Like it just, there's so many other factors that go into it. And let's not discount the fact that, you know, once it says there's, you know, multiple commas on your bank account, like it could be, it could be difficult to find motivation when things are going bad, especially if your team's struggling, you know, the environment you're in isn't great, but, I'll tell you what, like you flip that script and, and your team's really good and you got really good young players who are, who are motivating you every day. Like, I, you know, and look, I took to your point about using the technology to identify all those things. Sure. Let's do that. Great. And then let's use the, the technology to supplement what we know about human beings, but really like let's pay attention to the circumstance a little better. Definitely. Last topic of the day, Giannis Antetokounmpo. Did I say that right? Giannis. Yeah, 
Um, humility, humility and loss. Um, the quote, it's supposed to be hard. What does that mean to you? Um, noted, not a big basketball guy. I know Giannis well enough to call him Giannis. So um, I know he's an absolute stud. I know he's probably going to win the MVP again this year. Context was he got hurt in the playoffs, right? He had to trust his, his guys and he's up for free agency. Is he leaving Milwaukee? And he just had really good answers. Seemed like. Yeah. If there's anything that comes across from the Greek freak to me, it's that he's a, like a really good human. Um, that's just from hearing him talk, I could be completely wrong. I mean, I, I would imagine he's a good person. Uh, people speak highly of him. Uh, well thought of. There's two way to handle. There's two ways really to handle defeat, I guess, at any given point in time. And I, I would say two ways that I think are professional, I guess, um, or like what to me, the way I would envision a guy that I revere kind of handling it. One is this way with humility say, Hey, look, you know, it's hard. And the other way is to not complain about it, but you know, be upset about it and go do something about it. Right. And then instead of talking the talk, you go walk the walk type of thing. Right. Um, all the other ways like complaining, making excuses, you know, pointing to this, that, and what could have gone wrong and why it happened and all I was hurt. Like, that's just, that's like a sucker's way out, man. That's like what losers do. They, they just find reasons why not instead of, uh, instead of why two or why 2K, why two, I don't, I don't know. I think I, uh, in golf, they talk a lot about learning how to win. And it's so easy to lose. It's so easy to do things poorly, um, to crumble down the stretch. Like your adrenaline gets up, your heart rate gets up, things speed up on you. The emotional component of that, the um, awareness and being ability to stay present and slow things down, that's hard. It's really hard. Like you get up in a big game, like two outs, tying run on third. Uh, you're like moms in the stand cheering for you and your heart rate gets up when you're, when you're little, right? So – I remember when you were in the big leagues, I would, my heart rate would get up just watching you on my phone being like, come on, Chris, you could do it, Chris. I can't imagine what your heart rate was like in the batter's box. If my heart rate, like sitting at home, laying in bed, watching you is up. So learning how to win, like some, some guys have it naturally. Some guys have to figure it out. When you look at what Jordan does or what Jordan did versus the LeBron and that whole debate where like Jordan just wins, man. Like there was, when he showed up to the, to the court that day, he was going to win. And it, that doesn't mean he did win every time, but his focus was on winning and doing what needed to be done to win. And he was going to win period. The hardest thing about like, so it's a pyramid, right? The closer you get to the top of the pyramid, meaning like you get to the playoffs, finals, whatever, like all the teams are getting closer and like the margin is, you know, whatever. And what I noticed as you know, we're talking about hoops and we're talking about basketball and Patrick and I talked a lot during the, the buck series. And I, I said, if, if Milwaukee wants to win, Giannis needs to take over, right? Like he just needs to take over because he's capable of taking over. And I would say the same thing about the Celtics and Jason Tatum. And I would say the same thing about the Clippers and Kawhi and the Lakers and LeBron. And because every team needs to have that guy. And this is what Jordan was, right? And revolving around the fact of every, everything we just talked about, 
the scariest thing is the fear of what if I don't, you know, what if I mess up? Like, how do you block that out and go, I'm going to take the ball and I'm going to go do it. I'm just doing it. And then I'm going to live with the results, whatever they are. And a lot of players don't have that ability in their brain to say like, I'm going to go be the guy, whether it goes right or wrong, because there's a lot, there's like hell to pay after if you don't do it in a lot of ways. Right. But it's like the old saying goes, you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't, you don't take. So Wayne Gretzky, Michael Scott. Yeah. So somebody has to, somebody has to rise to the moment, to the occasion. And that's not to say you're going to win or you're going to, you're going to do it every time. Uh, you know, watching the Raptors Celtics series, uh, you know, Pascal Siakam, really good player in the NBA. He looked a little bit tentative, like, and, and Barkley and O'Neal talked about it. And I said, oh, I'm glad I'm not making things up and not that I'm an NBA analyst, but he, there were moments in the series where he just, he looked like he didn't want to make the mistake or he, he was afraid to go mess up or whatever. And, and that's what, like, that's, that's a learning process. It's, it's, it's an acquired skill. I think, the beauty of, of a guy like Jordan was like, that was ingrained in him. And look, like he was humble in defeat a lot of the times, but don't think for a second, it didn't piss him off enough to go like this ain't happening again. Like, and I think that's the thing that separated Jordan and probably Brady too. I would say has that like where like every time it goes poorly, like they flip the script on you and go, I'm going to figure out how to go make it better. I'm going to figure out how to make the adjustments that I need to make to make it different. Like Jordan, let's not forget Jordan went from leading the league in scoring. I want to say it was two or three years in a row on bad teams. to, and I think he still won some scoring titles, but like his role on those Bulls teams changed where he had to distribute the ball. Like John Paxson and Steve Kerr hit shots to win championships because Michael realized that in order for his team to win, that was part of what he had to do and put, put those trust and build those guys up around you while you're taking your game to the next level. That's like, that's special. Yeah. Taking, taking, use the term taking over. It, that doesn't mean you're ball hogging and trying to make, you know, make things happen by yourself. To me, that's more of a mindset that everybody else is going to rally around. It's, it's, a, it's a demeanor. It's an attitude. It's an intent that it has, you have to like radiate. People have to feel it. And I think part of evaluating talent, part of like when you watch, I know I'm talking you specifically, when you watch a baseball game, you can see when players have that. When I watch a baseball game, I can see when a guy's got compete. Some people can't see it. They're not even aware of it. It's, it's scary, man. And that's and, like some in scouting and in, in evaluating talent and looking at like, that's why I don't like LeBron because I don't see it in LeBron. There's moments where he just is like, all right, I'm a freight train. I'm going to just, physically take over this game but i don't see him doing it with that the mental the i'm the leader everybody yeah. knows he's the best everybody knows he's the best player on the floor but is he commanding that i just think i think having having the ability to lift your teammates up man like ha having them go to another level and you know if you watch the last dance people talk about jordan doing it through fear right like everybody was scared of michael but like at the same time like they knew Michael was a good man and like they were, it was a good teammate and he wanted to win. And that was, they were like, doing it. He was doing it for that reason. And was it wasn't that to like, them it's up. not like those guys would sit there and be like, I'm scared that, you know, Michael's going to be mad at me or whatever. Like, because, and the difference was that Michael could do that because he never asked his teammates to do something he wouldn't do himself. Right now, if you're the guy that wants to, you know, talk smack, but you're not holding yourself to the same standards, then that's when I, 
I kind of have a problem with you, you know, like, and that's, that's hypocrisy to me. And hypocrisy is one of my least favorite things. Yep. Can't have it. Uh, great. Anything post-show? We got any post-show? Uh, White Sox, I saw a tweet last night that if the season ended, they'd be in first place right now. Oh, uh, side note. I did uh, spaghetti and baseballs. John Morosi was on the other night. Uh, sleeper pick to win the World Series, Chicago White Sox. So I know we've talked John's, about that. That was John's sleeper? Yeah, he, he said uh, he's got the Dodgers in the National League, and then he said the American League, wide open. Um, but he said, uh, you know, obviously he's – he said, you know, the White Sox are like his, I, I, I guess, heartfelt, like emotional pick. Like he's to get the Dodgers to win the World Series because. His romantic, his romantic pick. What's the, it's like they're doing like regional bubble type stuff, right? And they've been playing a bunch of trash teams. So there's some skepticism about if they're good or not. Yeah. I know, means- Patrick, we know, we know you're a, a big White Sox stand. That's the first time I've used the word stand, by the way. Big White Sox stand. And for good reason that they're a fun team. I, I want them to do well. They got some pitching. They got offense. We, we could have a crosstown. Series. Yeah, they're playing the NL Central and the AL Central. And, I mean, you know, Detroit and, and Kansas City aren't, you know, you're playing half your games against – or a third of your games against them right now, man. I just have – I have one other thing. It's kind of like a uh, – not a typical topic, but something I just want to acknowledge and give a shout-out to uh, A.J. Pollock and his wife. Um, there was a big article in ESPN. They had a, a daughter, Maddie May, I believe is the name, and uh, premature situation in the heart of, like, in the throes of COVID. Reading the article, I, I mean, I teared up reading it, and it sounds like she's doing really well right now. AJ's friend of the program, I would say, and just wanted to give them. Uh, is this shout Blue out. Chips, friend of the program? Yeah, he's a good dude. Really, really good dude. I, I like and, uh, I think everything I've heard about him is – Yeah, I just, I just wanted to, to shout out uh, to him and his family and glad everything's turning out all right. I, I had known about it a few months ago. Didn't know how things were going, but um, great to hear that baby's doing good. One love. All right. I'll tear out. I'll tear out. Cobra's out. Related. Stop on that right there.